1: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Vallonson. I usually introduce my episodes with a whimsical intimation that one idea or another is in some sort of crisis, only to promise a moment later that everything will be fine by the end of the program. Today this violence might not be restored quite so easily because we'll be talking about museums, specifically museums of contemporary art. These institutions have come under a fair amount of scrutiny in recent years. MoMA in New York has its own Occupy movement, for example. At the same time New museums keep on springing up all over the place. This means that the critics of these institutions have an opportunity to observe the processes of formation, growth and the potential decline of their ethos within a singular time frame. To try and understand these processes, I invited the authors of not one, but two books to the programme today. The first is Georgina Adam, whose book The Rise and Rise of the Private Art Museum looks at the ongoing explosion in the numbers of private and corporate art museums around the world. Georgina is a journalist specializing in the art market. She writes for the Financial Times and the art newspaper. Her book brings together insights from interviews with many museum founders and directors, art collectors and curators. My other guest is Nitin Shackett, His book, Museums and Wealth, the Politics of Contemporary Art Collections, looks at the effect that the privatization of the art museum has on its ability to serve communities. Nitsan is Professor of Contemporary Art History, Museum and Curatorial Studies at California State University, Long Beach. What you hear now are extracts from our conversation. Georgina Nitsan, welcome to you both.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you. I'm very excited to have this conversation. I I have to admit that before I started reading your books, I worried for a moment that we might end up having one of these very polite conversations in which everyone agrees about what the problems are, and then we don't go anywhere else. But I think between your two books, we actually have a good chance of being able to analyze quite precisely how the museum comes about, what happens to it, and, and what we might be able to do about it. Regina, I'd like to start with you. Your book captures the Contemporary Art Museum quite literally at its point of origin.
3: Perhaps I'll start by saying why I wrote this book. Because, as you know, A, I'm not an academic. I'm a journalist. And I come from the art market and I've always been fascinated by art and money and the interaction of the two. And um having written a couple of books about the art market and particularly the second one, which is about the excesses. And one of the things that that I have done a great deal is visit private museums. I had hoped to visit many more, but then COVID intervened. But I had visited quite a few on press trips around the world. And I became kind of fascinated by the fact that um, today's philanthropists, or whatever you call them, collectors, no longer benefit their local museums. They do not... Now, there's some obviously shining examples, mm-hmm. and one of them I cite is that the people in Dallas is, is amazing, Howard Ruschowski, and I just interviewed Marguerite Hoffman, and they have, mm. on their death, their collections were passed to the Dallas Museum of Art, so they're supporting their local museum. But I was kind of fascinated by why it is that billionaires, mainly these days... You know, want to have their own private museum, and why is the public sphere losing out? That was my starting point, and I had visited about fifty. Which I think there are about four hundred in the world. It's Mm. very difficult because it comes down to defining what a museum is, which is problematic. And then I did include um, museums that are run by luxury goods companies, which is a whole other interesting aspect. Is a branding exercise. A way of keeping your brand in front of the public I, I was also looking at the f- this this terrible problem of the falling public support for museums financially compared to the resources of billionaires hmm. which are just pricing museums right out of the market um, because of my interest in the market and of course. A private museum is not like a public institution in the sense it's not what you might call full service. You know, they it's some one person's collection that's basically put up and for people to admire.
2: Well, we've barely started and we already have the problem of defining what a museum is and who for. Um, to illustrate this problem, I'm going to read one of the candidate definitions that ICOM, the International Council of Museum, has been mulling over in what has been quite a controversial process over the last couple of years. So one of the proposed statements is, A museum is an accessible, inclusive, not-for-profit institution. It inspires discovery, emotion, reflection, and critical thinking around tangible and intangible heritage. In the service of society and in active partnership with diverse communities, museums research, collect, conserve, exhibit, educate, and communicate. They operate professionally and ethically, promoting sustainability and equity. Um, I have to admit that I selected this definition from the candidates to reflect maybe on some of the more um, social good definitions that have been proposed in the wake of the obvious social turn over the last couple of years. So let's use this to turn to you, Nitsan, to try to think about why it is that thinking about the purpose of museums has become so important
0: for me as a materialist i look at the conditions as they are and and the goal really is to describe them as accurately as possible um and you know that's the the methodological objective of historical materialism um you know assuming that oftentimes uh history or reality presents appearances to us and and we're digging for the essence of it so as a materialist looking at museums the first question is you know how are they administered how are how is the funding administered and so the for, for me the first definition is museums are nonprofit institutions mm-hmm. of course um, that is you know uh, a format or a form that originates in the United States, but it is increasingly mined in Europe and elsewhere. And maybe in the United States is where you see the nonprofit system straddling uh, the public Mm. and the private domain in the sense that they are often, if not to some degree, always publicly subsidized. And then to some degree, They are private. Almost all the institutions in the United States to some degree are private. So when I look at a nonprofit institution, I'm interested in um, describing in detail what is private, what is public, and oftentimes things that are considered private from a legal standpoint, I make the argument that they should actually be seen as public, given that they're publicly subsidized. Hmm. So my interest really is in the administrative structure and the way that this administrative structure drives the outcome of of collecting collections and ultimately exhibitions.
2: Okay, so we see a bit of a commonality between the public museums and the private museums, and as much as they both ostensibly take the form of non profit organizations, which of course means different things in different jurisdictions. And another aspect seems to be that they all purport to deliver some sort of public benefit, although, as Georgina has noted, the aspirations might be slightly different in the case of private museums. Well, at the risk of taking us deep into the weeds, then, I want to ask how we judge what public benefit is. It seems to me that we have this conception of public benefit that used to come with the historical museum. So, protection of heritage and, and education. These these terms, maybe at least to my memory, appear to have been uncontroversial until maybe fifteen years ago. But we're in a very, very different set of circumstances now.
0: I, I think we once had a million dollar question. Now we have the billion dollar question. <laughs> um and I think I think it is this is why the my book is about collecting contemporary art. And Te- from a technical standpoint, it probably should have been titled "Contemporaneous Art," since yeah. I deal with um, collections of art of its time at various stages in history. But of course, the press didn't want to name the book and didn't want "contemporaneous" <laughs> in the title. But when it comes to our present moment, there is, as you know, as Georgina has written, and I I do rely on her work. Um, a boom in contemporary art and when we have contemporary art we don't have the historical distance um, to assess its significance and therefore its status as a public good so the questions are are far more acute um, mm. uh, the market is um, you know excessive as Georgina has showed and so the stakes are very high to ask, about artworks, whether or not they constitute public good. So, oftentimes, when you look at these private-public partnerships, and they make the case saying, "Okay, this uh, deserves public subsidy because it's offering a public good," and there is assumption that all private collections are somehow mm. a public good, and that the public will benefit from seeing them. And we have to, we have to question um, that assumption.
2: Mm. But Georgina, I think your book actually asks that question quite directly to to quite a number of museum founders, owners, and directors.
3: I think that there is a particular problem in the states because of the tax breaks. A lot of the really egregious behavior, I'm afraid. Sorry, Nitzan, but it's in America. (laughs) 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 Um, And Senator Hatch actually nailed that already. Right. And uh, my experience of, of. going to museums in other parts of the world, uh, is that a, a lot of these museum owners get no tax breaks. Mainly, most countries, there are mm. no tax breaks. So they're doing it for other reasons. Mm. Now, those reasons can be, in some cases, admirable. They want A lot of them come from backgrounds where they had no art. They want to give back to the community. A lot of them do have educational programs. I mean, an example, I think, is the little museum sush, in Mm -hmm. switzerland which i visited which is a pilgrimage in itself you have to take four trains to get there
2: but it's quite a trip i just want to say that i'm going to include links to all the institutions um, museums and so on that we discuss in the episode notes
3: and it's a polish person and uh, she shows polish art and she has quite an active program for education in this tiny village so, and as far as I understand, she lives in Switzerland, so I do not know exactly what her tax accountant deals, how he deals with that. But nevertheless, she funds a museum mm. that, that certainly, um, is, is of benefit to the small community it's in, I think. I also think about places like, um, the Samdanis in Bangladesh who are building a museum and they are, they have given a platform for Bengali artists. That didn't exist before because there's no way that a country like Bangladesh can afford support mm-hmm. art, contemporary art. So, I would perhaps modify slightly the proposal about the public good and uh, the private benefit in a sense to say that it's difficult to generalize worldwide. So, now I've also seen, of course, uh, in China particularly, there's a strong real estate link, and there mm-hmm. that's a problematic as well. Uh, art is used. But nevertheless, I went into writing this book thinking all private museums are sort of, you know, basically tombs for trophies, as somebody said Mm. to me. (laughs) I came away with a more nuanced view. And I came away thinking that a lot of these museums do offer a nice place for people to go and look at contemporary art that they might not, you know, in a country that really didn't have a contemporary art museum before, for example, India, countries that could not afford it. Mm. They were encouraging the artists of their community. And so, as I say, it's nuanced. I think there are very egregious examples, but I think there are also some pretty fine examples of engagement with the community.
2: Well, certainly your book, Georgina, is full of examples of this diversity of approaches and and regulatory regimes within which private museums operate, but maybe for us to be able to think about how the museum evolves and why, while we might still need to pay some attention to to the regulatory aspect, we could go back to the Medici, as you do, Nitsan, and as much as your book is a reflection of our contemporary conditions, I think this historical example is a very potent one.
0: Well, I look, you know, if um, for those of us who know art history, I don't look at the famous Medici's, right, not Mm. um, Cosimo uh, or Lorenzo, but I look at Francesco, who's subsequent Medici. But his significance for me is that, you know, within five years of building his private studiolo in the Palazzo Vecchio, he transfers his collections to the Uffizi, and of course, it's more complex and you have uh, examples of art made public uh, beforehand. But this is a moment that I identify historically as a moment that sees what I call the externalization of the collection. Mm-hmm. Because there is this realization that the collection, rather than being an inward gazing device, a place for the prince to contemplate or to um, a place of communion or or private spiritual process, or a sense of command over his domain, that there is the need to represent this um, mastery of knowledge, understanding of classification, prowess in the humanities, whatever you want to call it, there is a need to represent it externally. First to a peer group, and then gradually it unfolds all over Europe where it becomes what what we will call in the future the public. And the ways in which this transformation of the collection to becoming a representation of knowledge and a representation of the right to sovereignty in some ways, Mm. it is associated with the moment that art begins to actually be valuable. Because we know before that it is not. And, you know, I cite the Lorenzo de' Medici um, inventories where you can see that a, a frangelico is Worth less than a trinket. So, so, the ability of the collection to function as a treasury is associated with externalization. And what I found really interesting this is like something Dora Thornton mentions is that this is when the catalogs switch from uh, speaking in the language of the prince or looking at the collections from the perspective of the prince to being seen from the collect from the perspective of the visitor so collections hmm. become externalized and they so they begin to accrue symbolic value just as they accrue um, monetary value and that later becomes you know the the provision of, of, of the state from being you know the domain of the absolute estate the nation states also adopt this this form of, of holding a collection in common. I think this is what allows public collections, museums, to essentially function today as banks do. They mm-hmm. stabilize the market. And I think the origin of their ability yeah. to do so
3: lies in this uh, later Medici moment. I'm really interested in that because this is, this is the museum as the validation, isn't it? That's what you're saying. The, as a bank. Yes. But on the other hand, in Europe, not in America, in Europe, a work of art that's in a museum has no further value since it cannot be deaccessed. Oh. This is where it functions uh, as a system, right? Because that
0: work is will not be deaccessioned, but a work by a, the same artist outside on the market, its value is going to be influenced right. A crew. I like this example of when Dutch still life. Yes, it's not necessarily in the book, but there was a renewed interest in Dutch still life, and then subsequently museums began exhibiting them again, and then you saw the rise in the market at the same time. and And this is where um, art market studies, collection studies, and museum studies are actually they're emerging fields, and there and there are enormous areas where understud- that are understudied. I've been looking at this history. Thinking that I could come up with like, you know, 30 uh, dissertation ideas just (laughs) pointing to what is missing. I would love a study that would look at the influence of uh, Svetlana Alpers and then subsequently Hal Foster on the exhibition of Dutch art and then on its market and look at what the trajectory is, what the development is
3: and what the influences are. Well, one of the things that you say in your book, and you point out, and it's an extremely valid point, is the influence of trustees who will who use that validating, that endorsing aspect of museums. Uh, Firstly, artists that perhaps they collect themselves, artists that they donate to the museum, and that's a way of of enhancing their value. So that's the thing. But also getting advanced knowledge of exhibitions and using that as well. I mean, it would be illegal in uh, its insider trading,
2: quite frankly. Well, I think that's an important point, Georgina. And maybe it is that the art market in comparison to the financial market is just so small that no one has really bothered regulating it to, to, to that extent. But I think the observation of the network effects to which Nitsan points is still quite important. So we have this proposal that art only becomes a commodity, a financial instrument, when it is underwritten by a state. So I want to ask you, Georgina, whether from your interviews, from your wealth of interactions with individual collectors, whether you begin to see in that the beginnings of the formation of some kind of a wider system and a network that kind of interacts in a way that needs characterized.
3: I think that's, I think that's, that's too general. Because Mm -hmm. as I've said before, I think that the motivations vary. And if you like, I think that within the private collector, talking about private museums, the private collector, it's not just one motivation. Mm -hmm. You know, they probably have a number of motivations. And according to the individual, that motivation, you know, those different motivations might be larger or smaller. So it might be 10%, well, self-aggrandizement. Ten percent, hoping that to increase the value of mm-hmm. the works of art they're putting. But it's very interesting what you say because, as you say, something that goes into a museum it accrues value through the fact that it's been endorsed by a museum. So obviously, if you've got your own museum, <laughs> it's a bit of a slam
0: dunk. Perfect
2: system,
3: <laughs> which, which is the
0: argument for not giving any public subsidy because it's yes. already built in. You are well for me the fact that you are this wealthy already means that you're appropriating social value. So let's begin there. But then um, even putting that aside, the fact that you are able to build a museum and exhibit your art And for that reason alone, the art is going to go up in value. That should be enough. There should be Mm -hmm. zero additional public subsidy if we don't even go ahead and change the system that has allowed these people to become very wealthy. Because when Georgina speaks about countries that can't afford the art, but individuals that are citizens of Mm -hmm. this country that can afford to build a museum, then we have you know, we are already looking at a sign of deep social crisis.
3: Yes. I mean, it's interesting because I did ask that question, you know, well, why don't they just, instead of building their own museum, you know, why don't they support the local state museum, for example, in India, or in, I think it was in Malaysia. And it was interesting because the collector said it's it's a terrible problem. There's terrible conservation problems in the, in, in the state-run contemporary art museums, of which there are a few. Uh, you know they've got rats in the basement. You could also see things actually physically disappear. I mean it is about controlling your collection in some countries that donation to a local state run institution is not necessarily a good a good outcome for the people who who genuinely actually want to show their collection, who want to encourage contemporary artists from their community or from their country. So it's, it can be complicated. I think the, the situation in America is really quite specific in the sense that I don't think any other country, except France, for, en, for enterprises, for commercial enterprises, gives such enormous tax breaks. And I think this slightly excused the picture. Um, but just I wanted to say one other thing that I think is really interesting. I have never, haven't had the time to check back this figure, but apparently more museums have been bought, built this century than. All the museums that were built in previous times, mm. which is extraordinary. I think it's a sign of a time. I think it's, I think it's to do with the polarization of wealth that yeah. we're seeing. Mm. I, yeah. I just think it's absolutely intricately linked with that. But what Nitsan says is right. That is also there's. I'm a bit of a fail on the part of publicly funded institutions. I know that in America you have a different definition anyway. Why aren't they attracting private donors into their why do a private, does a private donor have to build their own museum? Why don't they give it? So I think that's an interesting aspect as well.
2: Well, maybe Nitsan is going to help us here, but I also want to ask him um, a very, very simple question for the avoidance of doubt for our non-American listeners. Nitsan, why is an American museum always private, even when it is ostensibly public?
0: Well, I mean, I think it has to do with, with the history of of the American institutions. They were originally built as, as private institutions. Mm. And I, this is one of the things I actually look at in detail in uh, different contexts is this demarcation between what is considered public and what is considered private and at what point. And when you look at the history, and, and I predominantly use Morton Horowitz. Uh, who is a legal scholar because Mm -hmm. these distinctions happen in the law and in tax law uh, and in policy. But you can see that, the terms have fluctuated dramatically over history, and they have even flipped almost. So if you if you look at early tax law, early English tax law considers all taxes to be sort of donations by private individuals. Yeah. I mean, there's a long, I won't get into all of these details. One of the things that I show in the third chapter, this kind of continuation of the trajectory of the Medici externalizing the collection, is from there on you see it's increasing externalization. So uh, 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 the definition of the public becomes more and more broad, who is included in this demographic, the need of, of first the absolutist state, then the nation state, to use the museum as a as a kind of educational device, yeah.
3: and to it, to give the notion of the na- of the nation, the nation, it? It very much yeah. sort of pride in the nation, and to, to give a
0: a sense of national identity to the mm. to the people, mm. but also exactly. you know, as Alan Wallach says, you know, um, to give the bourgeois, the the rising bourgeoisie who are not an aristocracy, a coherent sense of identity as well, mm. so they function in some ways, like Borgio has showed, as, as you know, mechanisms to, to um, stabilize uh, the social contract by actually maintaining class stratification between ruling classes and the masses that they aim to educate or uh, indoctrinate through these institutions. But what is significant is when we make the leap across the pond to the U.S., And the American robber barons want to replicate uh, this this model. They do it by opening these museums privately. So the United States is a country that's funded, founded on small government um, Mm. and private charity Mm. that only later will accrue the kind of notion of philanthropy and then will finally become the nonprofit system. And I look at, at these um, you know, these transformations and reach the condition where we are today, where they are essentially hybrid institutions that when it comes to asking for public money or their interface interface with their audiences will claim to be public But when it comes to scrutiny or Mm. accountability, they will claim to be private. And the ways in which all of this is organized by law and policy and is actually completely legal. And then those who have access to lawyers, accountants, knowledge, have the ability to basically control the system and use it for their own benefit. And mm-hmm. so the t- the typology of museums range from, you know, private foundations and then all the way to to really the only public institutions in the United States are, are the Smithsonian institutions, but they all will have foundations through which they will funnel private donations because there is not sufficient government funding there never was. Mm-hmm. I will just I, I will make one more statement about the fact that this is why the, the chunk of money that is the tax deduction or the tax defrayal, the status of that money is actually still in question. We don't mm. have a concrete answer whether that is public or private. We have an argument mm. on whether whatever the donor would have paid in taxes, and now they're going to be giving in form of money or in form of art or in form of opening their own institution or opening their own wing, this, the, the status of this money, because we don't know what it is, we have an argument about who gets to control, what kind of content we're actually going to, what art are we going to collect and then subsequently exhibit?
3: I mean, I do think there's a, a broader problem, to come back to this, this question of this money, is it's not only in the cultural field. It's a legal question it's it's a huge question i mean education in particularly in america is the way that people with colossal amounts of money can influence government policy in all sorts of domains and culture culture absolutely and one of the things that 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 certainly bothers me about um, private museums is that they can set the cultural agenda
0: the, and they are setting a cultural agenda mm-hmm. and
3: and they are i mean come on is jeff koons really the most significant artist of our time excuse me George (coughs) Baselitz? Do we need public subsidy for George
0: Baselitz? Christopher Christopher (laughs) Wall?
2: Well, this is precisely where I hope our conversation would go. More names, please.
0: We most certainly do not need 43 or 44 Gerhard Richters in San Francisco. Is that what the people of San Francisco need? Absolutely not.
3: Anyway, but I think... I don't want you to uh, us to agree, do you, Pierre? You want us to disagree, <laughs> which we're not doing a very good job of.
2: <laughs> no, I, I think you're doing just all right. i by sense, Georgina, that you're a little bit resistant to accept um, Nietzsche's premise that everything is corrupt almost by design <laughs> in this universe. <laughs> but I wonder if we, I could, I could press you to to maybe look at some examples of where you have found. Founders and owners almost being caught in the act of of trying to manipulate these these kind of arrangements
3: uh it's it's quite interesting when I interview and, and I often if there is a if there is a museum, I often ask well who does the art actually belong to Because very often everything all the expenses go into whatever the museum is. however, the family retains control of the of the yeah. art and uh, can buy and sell it. Now, that doesn't happen if you put your money into a five zero one c three in America, then you're stuck. Then you can't resell it. So uh, that's that's but you know for your personal profit, you can resell it, but then the money has to be plowed back into the foundation. so that that's an interesting aspect, but i I that, you were asking me about sort of the end game, and one of the things that I think is interesting about private museums and the last chapter of my book is devoted to this, is that I don't think most of them will survive the death of their founders. So I think these are things that are temporary. Georgina
0: is raising a fantasy scenario in my head, which is that, (laughs) that when these institutions do not survive the death of their owners and are then by default taken over by the state, if they're not taken over by another private institution, that then you know, the the state can come in and then assess the art and then say, well, okay, like pretty much 80% of this, if not 90 or 95 is not really museum quality. So no. let's dump it back on the market, hmm. which will result in equalizing the market, which has gone out of control. So that's one, definitely one fantasy scenario. And one of the problems of these collections and the need of the collector's for control and the ways in which these like donations are configured. And I, and I show this example with the SFMOMA because Neil Benesra, who was the director of that museum at that time, had himself said that out of uh, roughly 1,200 Fisher collection works that the SFMOMA has taken on a 100-year loan, about 400 are really important works. So then you have the museum actually taking on 800 more works that are not really important, according to the museum director, but they will accrue value. And they have not actually been given to the museum. So the museum becomes a mechanism to potentially enrich the heirs of the Fish Fisher family.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the Fisher is a, is a very good example of a very bad deal. I mean, a <laughs> really? hundred years. For yeah. goodness sake, who knows what's going to
2: happen in 100 years? Yeah. It's absurd. I have a feeling, Georgina, that Nathan would, would argue that there are hundreds of such examples. And I think, Georgina, even within your book, you have examples of this kind of slight, slightly shaky deals. For instance, when museums collapse, as you, have, um, as you list a whole bunch of them yes, in, in, yes. in your book, quite often the state is called in not to benefit, not to wind up the trust and take it as its own tax takings, but actually to continue funding the activity. And these things are expensive and quite often, as, as you seem to agree, um not always done for the best artistic reason.
3: I don't know. I think that state I mean I, I quote I can cite and I can't say who said this to me because she's a public servant in mm. works for a public institution here and she said we're going to be offered an awful lot of art in a generation's time and we won't want yeah. much of it.
0: But these are the kinds of judgments that we need to be making today. We can't have these interested parties making decisions on behalf of the public which shoulders the burden you know in direct and indirect ways and i think you know georgina has showed how the the competition in paris between arnaud and pinot are
3: costing the french public euros well Uh, (laughs) now this is this is really interesting does the public care whether it's a private hmm. or a public institution as long as they can go somewhere and see great art. And if you think about Vuitton, whatever you think about Bernard Arnault, and you know, well, he's obviously a very good businessman. He has given Paris, perhaps with with a lot of public subsidy, but he's given an, an incredible museum. It is an incredible outing. I went there just recently to see the Morozov collection. And one person who is definitely opposed to private museums said to me, look, otherwise I would have had to have gone to Moscow. Well, you can't go now. This was pre uh, the invasion of, of um, Ukraine. And I would have had to have gone to two different places. And this, the the, the Vita exhibition, this was the Shuchi, in fact, he said, it was amazing. It came to Paris. I was able you know, to go and see these works of art that I wouldn't have been able to see otherwise.
0: We could have done these things um, using the same money from a public perspective. We're not necessarily equating uh, private funding with the failures. We're just saying maybe the whole system is not worth that particular success story and that we would have way more success stories if we distributed the money in a different way.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Hmm. So this is interesting, Ethan, because you devote quite a lot of space in the book to questions of equity and access, the kind of themes that are on the minds of museum directors and, and people who would like to keep public institution under some scrutiny at the moment.
0: Right. Well, I mean, you know, like everything in the book, I try to address things on on three levels. One is hold museums accountable to their promise, uh, within their own parameters. So, uh, you know, under the logical, the logic of the liberal nation state, the second to look at how they influence ideology. And, you know, I want to add, because Georgina mentioned, you know, they're, they're shaping, uh, culture in many ways. Hmm. And, and it's interesting to see how all, Donald and Doris Fisher and Eli Broad, two mega collectors, you know, with 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 the stories of, of Eli Broad's private museum and then the, the Fisher donation to the SFMOMA, are both proponents of charter schools. So they're also mm-hmm. using the nonprofit system to mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. privatize public education, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so you have this type of ideological control that now we know is also publicly subsidized really the objection is to an economic structure that facilitates this kind of wealth accumulation and the ways in which museums have become conduits in a system of wealth accumulation. And since a system of wealth accumulation necessarily relies on exploitation and that we now have this understanding of what Cedric Robinson called racial capitalism, the fact that classes have always been stratified further stratified the working classes have been further stratified by, by race and gender to basically make the claim that, look, this kind of wealth accumulation necessarily relies on inequity. So how is it going to deliver equity? It's, it might be able to deliver an appearance of equity. And this is really the, when, when you look at the attempts to diversify, quote-unquote, museums, which works on the level of collections, display, and also personnel who work at the museums. And we know from studies and from from the naked eye that museums are extremely undiverse. They are representations of of a history and contemporary condition of white supremacy. And how do we change it? This is the burning question on the minds of so many people in the field, ranging from art history to the, the, the vast field, right? Of all the overlapping fields that meet around museums. And you constantly see people seeking the answer from the top down rather than from the bottom up. Oh, we'll diversify. Um, we'll just, you know, we'll we'll make it seem as if uh, the distribution of demographics within these fields echo the distribution of demographics in society. But really what you have to do is solve the social inequity, which doesn't mean we don't work on diversity all at once. Right. We're not doing this kind of like 90s Um, against diversity. Uh, Diversity is extremely important. So, you know, if if you have, the example I give to my students is if, you know, if you have an internal problem that might be causing a rash on the surface, you fix the internal problem and you fix the rash both at once.
2: (laughs) I think this is a reflection of, of kind of a chicken and egg problem that we always encounter in the cultural field where we don't necessarily know whether we're trying to fix our institutions or whether we're trying to change the world by other means. And I wonder if this is a good moment to um, ask Georgina to reflect on the explosion of the museum world in China, where I think the scene is so young and so dynamic that we really get to explore the political aspirations of museums almost in real time.
3: There was at some point, yes, at some point they said they were building one a day, but of course they are playing catch up because they didn't have, and they have a huge population. But a lot of the, a lot of these museums is quite interesting actually because. Mm the, the, the state sponsored museums, uh for a start they haven't got collections, mm. you know, because they everything was eliminated during the Cultural Revolution and, and so everything was smashed. So uh the state hasn't really got collections. Yeah. Um uh, apart obviously from you know what they have some but what for contemporary art they don't and they don't really what the best way for them to solve it was to find collectors and then give them a tax mm. break on opening their own museums.
2: So this is exactly the kind of American model to a certain extent, but what I'm really interested in, and you do note this in the book, is how the politics of this plays itself out. You note in the book, for instance, that you've observed that some of the maybe not so um, state-friendly artistic practices are treated at an arms length by the state. Yes. So so yes. a private collector a private museum can take on certain political risks that a state controlled museum wouldn't and I'm sure there are very quickly limits to all of this.
3: Um well I mean I think there's a lot of uh, there's a certain amount of state uh, self-censorship goes on. People are not going to display. There was a period when they displayed much more but uh, at the moment and then with this extreme tightening of of all freedoms, really, since Tiananmen Square. Um, I think that the, um, the Chinese collectors are, are cautious. It's not just political. It can be religious as well. Mm-hmm. It's quite, quite sometimes quite surprising what has not been allowed to be displayed. I, I know that from art fairs. And I would go and say, well, have, you know, was there any, did anything not pass the censors? And they would say, mm-hmm. oh, well, yes, this or that. For example, this goes back a bit, but when the Beijing Olympics were held, there was a series of Andy Warhol portraits of athletes that were sent to be exhibited alongside at the same time, Mm -hmm. and it was stopped by the censors just because they didn't want the portrayal of athletes who weren't Chinese. This is quite odd, isn't it? It's quite odd. So, and I think it's, from what people tell me, it's quite difficult to work out what it is the censors are are going mm-hmm. to object to. But China is becoming more and more oppressive, so that's going to get worse. And it's actually quite interesting because um, uh, Uli Sig, who donated his collection mm-hmm. to M Plus, on the basis that he wasn't going to give it to mainland China because he would no longer control it, and so he donated it to Hong Kong's M Plus Museum. And of course, now exactly the same thing's happened. I mean, has been mm-hmm. clamped down in Hong Kong. And parts of that collection, notably uh, an Ai Weiwei will that was joined in well shows Tiananmen Men Square, um, will will never be displayed again.
2: Well I guess censorship is one of those arenas in which we can see quite explicitly the complicity between the states and the the private institution. But I wonder if I could ask you to to maybe fish out some other examples of these kind of weird collusions where Actually, the, the split allegiances of the private public museums mean that they're not able to deliver on the political promises that they and the artists often profess trying to serve.
0: I, I mean, one example, it might not be an example of of, of censorship, but, but what struck me with the Fishers, and I mentioned this, is that, you know, because they first displayed their collection at the SFMOMA way before they cut the deal and, and they published a catalog with interviews. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of bragging basically about not collecting difficult art, quote unquote. Yeah. You know, I think that this is the job of public institutions actually to, to deal with the difficult art. We can leave the easy art for the market. And for galleries, um, you know, mm-hmm. and this is where and, and and it bothered me greatly because they also, you know, they brag about not being professionals. They brag about not buying anything that's cutting edge. And then, you know, we just inherit it as if it's uh, a public good. And, you know, it's very easy to make the argument that it's not necessarily a public good and where I mm. actually see, you know, groundbreaking things happen and struggle and conflict is in in smaller like um, uh, university museums that can allow themselves mm. to be more radical. Mm. And then you see actually the bigger museums that are starving for funding, that are, you know, constantly begging for donations. They have to be crowd pleasers. And we already yeah. have a system, system of entertainment that covers ratings and everything that is judged by popular criteria. We the, 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 the idea of a, of a publicly uh, subsidized um, you know space for creativity is precisely to deal with the difficult and, and the mm-hmm. avant-garde and the not yet said or or the you know the under researched and underrepresented.
3: Yes. I mean, I think there again, I think we have to make a difference between America and the rest of the world is that an awful lot of countries, when a a publicly funded institution acquires a work of art, it can no longer get rid of it. I mean, this is the case of French museums. So I I think that there is a a problem there, quite apart from the costs. I think there is a problem there is that that decision to acquire perhaps a controversial work of art, um, which you're going to have forever, and it's going to mm. fill up your reserves and so on, um, may in, gosh, even 20 years' time, just no longer seem controversial, relevant, or anything. I mean, I was really interested. This is in the commercial side. I looked back at Art Basel, which is the prime art fair, contemporary and modern art fair, and when they had their 40th anniversary, I think, so that would have been about 10 years ago, I pulled out the catalogue of the first Art mm-hmm. Basel, Believe me, you hadn't heard of most of the artists.
0: Right, right.
3: <laughs> I think that, you know, we've seen several examples
0: over history of museums attempting to address this problem. So, um, and I talk about it the Museum of Modern Art uh, originally had a plan to have like a temporary collection that would move on to the Metropolitan. Yes and when they realized how much these things were wor- were worth they stopped that marsha tucker tried that with the new museum i think you know we have the um the the luxembourg and and louvre had that arrangement originally as well so i think that you know this is a real problem and this is why we need to be solving it from a social perspective because if we um, you know, and this, of course, is speculative, but I'm thinking, for example, about the ways in which we can separate between museums and the market such that we can form these these temporary collections without having museums influence mm-hmm. the value so much. So we can mm. experiment and hold things temporarily um, and assess because it may be the way to support contemporary living art is not collecting, but mm. rather display. And are there forms in which. Artists can make a living.
3: Yeah, of course. What's interesting is that the private museum, to an extent, solves this problem because it's somebody's. they spend the money, they put these things on display, and if they die, uh, you know, uh, it hasn't been acquired with public funds and sits in public reserves and, mm. you know, for, till Kingdom Come. I think actually, yeah, I'm, I'm all for, actually, that would, <laughs> you know, that's, that's sort of an extent of positive of the
0: private museum.
2: Okay, we're getting, we're getting dangerously close to solving the problem here. <laughs>
0: no, but unless they are publicly funded, right? So Georgina is absolutely right. I have no problem with private museums. Hmm. I think that that is a great idea as long as they don't get any type of public subsidy. Yeah. Because that is what throws the balance off.
2: I think there's a little bit more that you would like, like to achieve, Nathan. Well, of and I'm course. Going to ask, I'm going to ask Georgina to dwell on, I think, what is an example of, yet another example of these things bleeding into each other. So, Georgina, you do include corporations in your study ah. of museums, particularly yeah. the French ones. And, and it's kind of obvious almost from, from two words, but in a brand alignment, branding through art, mm. art washing, it happens every time. There's a reason that, you know, arms trained money um, sometimes funds contemporary art. But there, there, is, there is a kind of really weird and quite crushing effect that, that, that you see that, that you know, your, your fashion brand, your belt and your jeans will be somehow deciding what art is there for posterity.
3: Yes, and your handbag is, is by Takashi Murakami and yeah. you've got so many artists who, who are making, who are designing. On the other hand, you know, who better than an artist? They possess the visual, you know, they can make something with impact. So, I mean, I have no objection to artists making money. Absolutely none. I mean, this is is great. I mean, everybody else makes money out of them. (laughs) Well, that's
0: definitely not the objection.
3: It's it's a difficult one. I went into, I can't remember, I think uh, one of those very cheap shops and there were Jeff Koons T-shirts with a Koons on it, you know, and you could buy a Koons with a balloon dog on it. And I had two reactions. I thought, this is disgusting. And then I thought, well, on the other hand, we can all have a Koons. So if you should want a Koons, I mean, he's not a great example because I'm not a, I'm not a great admirer of Koons's late work, although I like his early work. Um, so, I mean, I think these, these are really complex. It's, it's, there's not an easy answer to any of these problems.
2: Hmm. But maybe we should spend a moment trying to think about some of the changes that museums have undergone in recent years. I think there's been a few reasonably high profile cases addressing individual museums since maybe the Me Too movement um, and the BLM protests. Something in particular of, of things like Warren Candace, trustee of the Whitney Museum, being forced to resign and then divest from his holdings in the arms trade. I'm thinking of one of the directors of the Serpentine Galleries, Yana Peel, being forced to resign um in the context of her, of being found to be linked to an Israeli security company. And of course there is the quite substantial um set of changes to do with the Sackler family and the Oxycontin scandal. So of course we've we've seen quite a lot of changes to individual institutions, but I have a feeling they they still, at least in Nitzan's view, would probably fall somewhat short of the kind of changes to the scrutiny systems that we are thinking about?
3: Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that the, um, the fact that there's much more scrutiny about where the subsidies are coming from uh, has, ha- actually might cool down the arms race between museums to have ha- ever higher audiences. And maybe that's not such a bad thing.
0: I'm celebrating these pressures because, you know, Warren, Warren Candors didn't just step down. This was a response to pressure of, of a number of organizations that came together spearheaded by decolonize this place. And they targeted him. This is not a personal targeting, right? He's being used as a model for the type of donor that populates um, these boards. Mm. And, you know, the most egregious example, but echoed by the Sacklers and many more. And with the agenda that we start to ask where the money is coming from, and, and with this idea that if we start to dig a little, then, then you know, we're going to end up asking, what are the systems that allow this type of self-accumulation? And what is the role that museums are playing? Because, they're you know, they're being quite um, willing partners in this regime of wealth accumulation, when they, um, you know, they cultivate these donors, they need them, and then they supply the art washing and, and all the, the assistance. But, you know, pressure by decolonize this place continued because they, and, and this is significant, because they um, have this initiative called Strike MoMA. Mm -hmm. which is with the agenda to, uh, quote-unquote, abolish MoMA that is ongoing. Now, I have to qualify because I'm, you know, I'm someone who greatly admires this effort, even though I would personally not strike MoMA, especially if you look at this book and how much time I spent in their archives. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I am, uh, as a a colleague uh, noted, a big lover of museums. And so you know i think that these these pressures are important because they might not sound realistic but they move the the lever and mm-hmm. and they reveal um the underbelly and then they help us form solutions and they help us negotiate like across this kind of range of positions that wants to completely abolish the museum and maybe helps us look for ways to make it more egalitarian by asking why this um, reliance on on wealth, where does wealth come from, and then how do we administer them differently?
3: Mm. And that's really the well, question I, for me. I, I tell you what we haven't discussed at all, and um, I think that perhaps we should just mention the fact that a Great Museum has an impact economically on the country by mm. attracting tourists and so on. And so we do have to think about that. And if they decide only to put on exhibitions of local artists, diverse local artists, that they will lose some of that. Now, you can rail against it, but it's a fact. The fact is that here in London, the British Museum, the National Gallery, Tate, are massive draws. I mean, since COVID, it's been Mm. problematic, but were massive draws for the tourist dollar, and so it's significant for the economy as well as being a platform. Um, it's it's an impact. I mean, I, I my answer to all of this is that unfortunately, it's an imperfect world.
0: <laughs> well, the question is how imperfect, right? Because we've actually seen these systems become more extreme, and yes. I think I think what we also need to mention is you know since. Pierre was saying in the beginning that, you know, the art market is actually relatively small to other markets. But we have to add the fact that art has become uh, a tool of financialization. Mm -hmm. And since since, um, asset class art has been has been developed tools to collateralize it and um, for contemporary art to become asset class museums are. Are very much needed because, you know, Gerhard Richter would not have been Gerhard Richter without the nonprofit industry mm. that culminates with Benjamin Buklo, mm. whom I think is responsible for much of, of the kind of intellectual significance mm. and therefore the symbolic power of, of a Gerhard Richter to, you know, suck and accumulate so much um, um, value that, um, you know, and it's being propped up by an international system of museums and then allows the the objects to be financialized and mm-hmm. for private individuals to, to borrow money and to reinvest. And and and, and so financialization amplifies
3: the size mm-hmm. yeah, of the I market. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I mean, and we are seeing very much, much more financialization in the contemporary world. I, I can't disagree with that.
0: This is why I came up with this idea. This is, you know, where it originated that I thought like, well, if this is where the big money is circulating and if the secondary and the resale market is where the big, um, you know, margins are being made, why not we tax that market and then use that to fund the field, which is losing out on all the privatization. Mm-hmm. So this is one of my ideas, which, which, you know, it's It's been tossed back at me that it's a reformist idea, but the idea to tax the the resale market for art
3: I think it's really interesting. I think the problem is that that the art market remains something that's very intimate, that's very um, and that uh, the authorities in countries have actually no real interest in attempting to regulate or tax the art market more because a it's small. B, it's complex because you're t- you're dealing with disparate ar- ar- articles, you know. So it's it, 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 this is this is very difficult. I just don't think. I think governments just don't see it as a priority. I just don't think the art market is seen as a priority. It's mm. and ultimately there is a feeling that so what if one guy gets stitched up when he buys a
2: Warhol. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's, that's chimes in with my experience of having worked in the financial services where the regulatory environment is completely different, but for the very simple reasons that when things go wrong, they affect the entirety of the population in one way or another. So I think it would be quite difficult to match the scales of the problem with the scale of the solution.
3: Well, there's not there's not only one art market, though. To be fair, I mean, we, we're very much talking about the little, tiny, tiny top of the pyramid. But there is, a, you know, creative industries and things going on in a perfectly um, legitimate way. <laughs> what we're talking about is a few billionaires and 25 artists in the world, or maybe 100, but no more.
2: Mm, that's a, that certainly seems to be the case, and I think what it brings up to the surface is the question of what kind of solutions we should be looking for. And and Nita and I know you've been thinking about this quite a lot, but we are looking at two quite quite significant tasks at the same time. On the one hand we're trying to change the governance of museums, which is maybe a technical set of solutions, but at another time we are possibly looking at the complete overthrowing of capitalism, which I'm not entirely sure what this it is within the scope of this podcast to to address. So how do you balance these various things together?
0: Let me start by saying that when you are writing for the art world, you are, you know, you're writing under a Janice-headed condition always, mm. because I'm talking to my peers on the left, and then many of many of whom are much more radical than I am. Yeah. And then I'm also talking to a very liberal art world that accepts the nonprofit system that believes in its potential to deliver democracy and um, that that find the most urgent effort to be diversity, and they're focusing on that, and they're not um, implementing structural changes. But, you know, there is this argument that the revolution is not around the corner, and, you know, you have the two sides. You, have, you always have the <laughs> fr- famous Frederick Jameson quote on, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world of the... Yeah. Than the end of capitalism, to which my response is, well, you must not have a very active imagination. <laughs> you know, we witnessed a scenario where, what if Bernie Sanders had won the election? Uh, well, I looked through the Green New Deal, for example, and there's no mention of art or museums mm. within it. And as Georgina mentioned, we have quite a lively tourism industry that is related to to very directly to museums. So I don't think that the question of making museums more equitable or Attempting to transform museums into machines that will redistribute wealth rather than aid in its accumulation. Mm -hmm. I don't think these ideas are so radical and so not around the corner. And the agenda of this book is to put the discussion on the table and to start to, I call them blueprints for the future because... Well, we can't wait for the revolution and then think about what to do when we get there. Mm. We need to start to have a, a, a variety of plans and ideas um, you know, in, 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 on various scales that we can put together mm. once the ice
2: caps begin to melt <laughs>
0: and, and the waters begin to rise.
2: Oh, well, I don't know how much time we really have left for this, but I'm going to try to suspend my disbelief. I'm going to take you at your word that there is a way to overcome the resistance of institutions to change, even though you do acknowledge in the book that most of the actors involved in the museums are, to a certain extent, complicit with its problems, sometimes unwillingly, sometimes unwittingly, but quite often through quietly chains of self-interest. But all that outside, what is the elevator pitch for reforming the museum?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, there is a global movement pushing to prevent this type of just rampant wealth accumulation. And, you know, whether revolutionary or reformist, um, you know, I think... That um, we are increasingly going to see, and with a younger generation, with all these details that we know about the changes that we see coming, that people are going to become interested in the question of, well, how do we just redistribute wealth? And if collections are treasuries, and if Mm -hmm. these are treasuries that are supported by state institutions, how does the state institution then partake in this larger project of, of equalizing um, or, or of, of delivering more equity. And, you know, we also, this is why the historical um, components of the book really matter. And these questions around like the transformation of tax law, and the transformation of, of, of distribution of profit and surplus. And uh, when you look historically, you see the fluctuations. Um, but we have seen tremendous fluctuations in how statutory and common law address um, the public-private distinction, mm-hmm. what is considered to be uh, taxable or not taxable, um, who owns what, et cetera. So there is absolutely no reason why social pressure might not lead to um, demands to equalize this field. And then if you look at – and then we're going to stand there and, and, and look and say, okay, where is wealth being held today? And one of the places that wealth is being held is art. So, you know, how do we regulate the art market? <laughs> I think that essentially if as long as museums and the art market are connected, and they always will be because they hold the same objects,
3: yeah.
0: collectors and uh, and these institutions that are semi-private, semi-public, hold the same um, artwork, whether it's on, you know, at the top of the market or the middle of the market, because museums now are collecting mm. Uh, in the middle of the market, and predominantly
2: by donations. Well, they've been priced out. Yeah. Well, see, to some, this could be a sign that the market is in fact functioning perfectly well. A little bit of government subsidy, public subsidy, makes the market go a long way, and then the market looks after looks after itself. And I wonder whether, to finish, Nitsan, I could ask you to think a little bit in conceptual terms on what it is that we could learn from the financial markets and their regulation that could give us some hope and and shed some light on what it is that's happening in this weird parasitic symbiosis between the public and the private
0: yeah because the financial market has a liberal understanding of how the market functions, yeah. and we don't. and And one of the claims that I make is that that I mean I'm not making it myself. I'm relying on the work of of economists, John Smith, who wrote Imperialism in the 21st mm. century and and um, Tony Norfield who wrote the city and um, the 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 financial market and and also the leaders, the financial leaders um, in governments. Have a belief system that is hypocritical. They take from mm-hmm. Adam Smith a notion of the invisible mm-hmm. hand of the market, but they yeah. don't take from Adam Smith um, the notion of productive and unproductive labor. And so, mm-hmm. their measurement of GDP mm-hmm. is essentially flawed. They double dip in their measurements, and the appearance of the market um, doesn't correspond to what its essence is. A lot of uh, there's the representation of value. Uh, that doesn't actually mm-hmm. exist. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, the phantom value is possibly the art world's most favorite thing. But I did actually want to ask you about this because you devote a little bit of space in the book to an extension of value theory, which which I found incredibly useful.
0: I had, I mean, I had a double motive. One of them was um, to try as much as I can explain value form theory in simple terms, so it could be translated mm-hmm. and explained to a larger, um, you know liberal art audience because the majority of art audiences have that liberal uh framework um materially and economically by which i mean you know they buy into this um assumption made by you know everyone that you know art generates the economy Mm -hmm. every the 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 mantra Art generates the economy. You will hear city boosters. You will hear state governors. Mm -hmm. You will hear museum directors, and this is the justification when they're asking for public money, because um, you know, as the NEA likes to show the statistic for every uh, for every public dollar, you get nine private dollars. So I rely heavily on the work Dave Beach did, and he did Mm -hmm. excellent work on on the question of of um, the exceptionalism of art to the commodity form, and he. Um, works with the, the distinction between productive and unproductive labor. But the one thing that he leaves out, because he comes from the perspective of art, the question of the yeah. status of the art object. And I come from the standpoint of institutional analysis. And he doesn't address the role of the museum in stabilizing this circuit um, of, of art and money. And so that's what I add to the picture. And then, you know, With this understanding that art is not a regular commodity and that it itself does not produce value, but art is part of the level of exchange and distribution of value that's always made in production. Um, you know, in, in situation where you, where you have, um, surplus, uh, value Mm. created by living, by abstracted living labor. And of course, what is important to understand when you have, um, a society and an economy is that these things are not qualitative. It's not that productive is necessarily better. It's just a means of measurement and a means to say, you know, we need to know what is productive and what is unproductive so we can measure. So then we can distribute because mm-hmm. there are, are a lot of activities that are absolutely necessary without which we will have no life, which don't produce value. So value production needs to happen in order to be redistributed um, equitably be- between all these sectors. And um, but the illusion in the liberal framework, in the liberal worldview, is that any type of, of um, economic activity is actually adding value. And what it does is actually it moves value around. And so we want to come to this understanding, which isn't that complicated. It's quite a simple understanding that the economy functions through aggregate. But once we realize that we have a pool from which everybody draws, then we're going to stop stop double dipping. We're going to stop double drawing. So that's one of the things that I really unpack. What is what is the status of the art object? How it's not actually uh, productive labor? And then how we can work with these distinctions between productive and unproductive.
2: Mm. Well, I certainly recommend this chapter and the rest of your book, and indeed Georgina's book, for a very interesting view of where museums are, where they've come from, and where they might be going. I think we did reasonably well. We had a bit of a debate. We had a bit of a disagreement. So it's now only left to me to thank both Nitsan and Georgina for joining me in this conversation today.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me and and putting me together with Georgina, because I think her work is hugely important. I think she really, I, I rely on journalists to bring these things to light that academics can't go find on their own.
3: It's been a really interesting conversation, and thank you so much for inviting me. And I really enjoyed Nissan's book. In many ways, I'm very much in agreement with you, although I do think that specific that that a more global view throws up more diverse reactions to the um, to the private museum field.
2: Museums and Wealth: The Politics of Contemporary Art Collection by Nissan Shakerd. Is published by Bloomsbury and The Rise and Rise of the Private Art Museum by Georgina Adam is published by Lune Humphries. I'm Pierre Delanceur and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time.